When we face our trials with faith, we encourage other believers to stand firm in their faith. Persistent prayer for others is a powerful way to help them grow in their faith. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you, and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us, and now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So this letter to the Thessalonians was written by Paul from the city of Corinth, probably around A.D. 52. Just to recap briefly, Paul had come to Thessalonica from the city of Philippi, which was to the east. Uh, He probably only spent a few months in Thessalonica before he was forced to flee for his life. And then he traveled about 45 miles southwest to the city of Berea. He was there for a short period of time, was run out of Dodge again by opposition, and uh, he sailed then south to Athens. From Athens, he sent word back to Silas and Timothy, his two uh, missionary partners, to join him from Berea as soon as possible. He was concerned over the spiritual welfare of this church in Thessalonica. They were a brand new church. He had only spent a few months there, and they were under pretty intense persecution. So when Timothy and Silas joined him in Athens, Paul sent Silas back north to Macedonia, and Timothy went to Thessalonica to find out how the church was doing and strengthen them in their faith. It had been probably eight months or so since Paul had seen them somewhere in that neck of the woods. Now, from Athens to Thessalonica, as the air flies, is about 186 miles, but by road, it's about 300 miles, 311 miles. So back in the day, you could take a ship from Athens to Thessalonica, and it was about seven days, plus minus, depending on the wind. By land, it was about two weeks of walking. If you could do 15 miles a day to 20 miles a day, a couple of weeks, you could get 300 miles done. So Paul writes in chapter 3, he explains his thinking for why he did what he did. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow work on the gospel of Christ to strengthen, which means to establish, and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I can endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter um, would have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Here's our principle. Staying connected to caring people can help us grow stronger when we face the inevitable trials of life. Staying connected to caring people can help us grow stronger when we face the inevitable trials of life. Now, this word endure is an interesting word. It's the word picture of the roof of a house, or it's the word picture of a watertight container. The roof of a house is designed to do what? Keep the rain out of the house, right? The weather out. 
and a watertight container is designed to keep things inside, watertight. So it has the idea of containing something or keeping a lid on something. Paul says, when I couldn't keep a lid on my feelings anymore, I was no longer contained my concern about you, I took action and sent Timothy up north to find out how you were doing. So he's explaining why he sent Timothy to this church. And he sent Timothy up north, he sent Silas probably to Philippi, and he stayed alone at Athens. And he said, we were left behind, he's talking about himself, I was left behind at Athens. Now this word left behind is pretty intense word. It means to leave a loved one at death. So Paul feels that he's cut off from the people he loves, the Thessalonians church, like dying, which is a really intense word that he really loved these people. He enjoyed the fellowship with them, and when he didn't have that, he felt like he was dying. He wanted to be with them, but he was willing to be alone if it meant that Timothy could go strengthen the faith of the Thessalonians. Now, he was left in Athens alone, and Athens was a pretty pagan joint. Uh, it was not, uh, it was pretty hostile to the gospel. The point is, being connected with other Christians makes us stronger. We have a saying in here, we do life together. That's very, very important. Doing life alone means that you take all the blows of life yourself instead of being able to share those with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, Paul told Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker. Timothy was younger. He was kind of a junior member on the team, and Paul wanted this church in Thessalonians. I'm sending him to you. They wanted to know that he had Paul's full confidence and full blessing. And you say, well, how come Paul just didn't go himself? Well, Timothy, remember, he got run out of Dodge in Thessalonica earlier. Timothy's father was Greek. Timothy probably looked Greek. And Paul probably thought that Timothy could work with less harassment in Thessalonica. Paul was immediately obvious as a Jew by how he dressed and how he talked. And he already got run out of Dodge, number one, by the Jewish religious leaders. And he would have attracted a great deal of negative attention there. So he thought Timothy would be more effective than him. So Timothy's job was to encourage them in their faith so that they would be able to endure persecution. Now, Paul was intimately acquainted with persecution. Before he met Christ on the road to Damascus, you remember, he was the persecutor. He harassed Christians, he arrested Christians, he imprisoned them, and he even helped execute them. Now he was the one being persecuted, uh, had experienced threats and slanders and mob violence, beatings, unjust imprisonment, stonings. He'd been run out of town on a rail multiple times. So he was acquainted with persecution, and he wanted to send Timothy to help these Thessalonian believers that were getting harassed for their faith. He literally wanted to, it says, strengthen them or establish them. Now, the Greek word here is steroiso. It means steroids. So steroids have to do with what? Muscles. Building muscle strength. So he wanted to put their faith on steroids. He wanted to make them firm and constant and spiritually strong and stable. It's like the idea of shoring up a building with support. Or when you're trenching a tunnel, you put these shorings in the side of the tunnel so it doesn't collapse. I guess the best way I can say is it's like putting rebar in concrete. You put rebar in concrete for what purpose? Strengthen the concrete, right? So Paul wanted to put rebar in their spiritual lives. He wanted to strengthen them. He wanted to give them some spiritual steroids, and that was Timothy's job was to establish them in their faith. It's like 
resistance training or weight training to grow muscles. One principle that I am deeply conscious of, especially as I age along with you, is the principle of use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. That applies to so many areas of life. We could spend days just on that. If you don't physically exercise, you lose muscle tone over time, and as you age, you will become frail. Just like your grandparents, when you were a teenager, you go, wow, what happened, right? If you don't spiritually exercise, your spiritual muscles atrophy, and you become spiritually fragile. So we need to work out physically, but we also need to work out spiritually. When you work out physically, what you do is you actually break muscle fibers down. That's why you're sore. And when you rest, they grow stronger. And surprise, surprise, working out is hard work. Yes, if you really work out, it's hard work. Here's an interesting concept. Many people believe that when they encounter difficulties, when they encounter problems, when they encounter trials and troubles, they automatically assume, I'm on the wrong track. I must have made a mistake, right? I think I should be doing something different because doing the right thing should not be difficult, right? Hmm. Interesting. I want you to think about Paul. Let's go back to this map. The story is told in Acts 16 to 18. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are in modern-day Turkey to the east, and Paul receives a vision from God from a man in Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So they conclude that God wanted them to come to Europe, which, of course, Philippi was, and they come to Philippi. And they exercise a demon, remember, from the slave girl, and they are arrested. They have their clothes torn off. They were beaten bloody and jailed without any formal charges being filed, let alone any kind of a trial. And remember, God used an earthquake to free them from prison. They left Philippi, traveled 100 miles east or west, rather, to Thessalonica. They begin to preach in the, in the Jewish synagogue, and they have a fabulous response in Thessalonica. Many people come to faith. And it's causing such trouble with the Jewish religious leaders that they organize a mob against them, instigate a riot, false charges of treason against Caesar are made, and they're forced to leave town at night or risk violence or even death. They then travel, as we mentioned, 45 miles south of us to Berea, where only weeks later, after having a significantly powerful ministry, the same folks from Thessalonica follow them down to Berea and do the same thing. Create a mob, create violence, promise, stir up a mob, run them out of town again. Paul jumps on a ship, goes south to Athens, he preaches, and he's ridiculed, mocked, and rejected. Only a few people come to faith. He then travels west to Corinth, and the gospel is cursed and rejected by the Jewish religious leaders there. And if you're Paul, you've got to be saying, did God really call me here, or is I just imagining things? Did I just eat too much chili reno that night, and I thought that this guy said, come over from Macedonia to help us? I mean, everywhere I go, I'm opposed, harassed, threatened, beaten, jailed, run out of town. It's nonstop difficulties. It's nonstop opposition. I must be on the wrong track. Just because it's difficult 
doesn't mean you're not on the wrong track. In fact, it may mean you're on the right track. But the Lord came to Paul in Corinth and encouraged him. Acts 18.9, And the Lord said to Paul in the vision of the night, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. There's a lot of things about these verses, but one of the most comforting is that Paul was afraid. I can identify that. And I'm thinking, Paul needed to hear God promise that I will be with you and I will bless your efforts. But it's equally important to realize that even though Paul was afraid, he kept on proclaiming God's word. God said, keep on proclaiming. He didn't say start proclaiming. Paul was operating in obedience, even though he was afraid. That's really important for us to remember, because not all of us operate with a great deal of faith and confidence. Sometimes we are afraid. The bottom line is, keep moving in obedience regardless of that point in time. God says, you keep on speaking, keep telling others about me. I'm going to save many, many, many people in this city. You know something? God has many, many, many people in your city, in your world, in your realm of influence that he wants in heaven. And it's our job to tell those people that God puts in our circle of influence about the Savior. Are they going to respond? I don't know. That's not our job. That's the Lord's job. Our job is to operate in faithfulness and proclaim the word of God to them in love as the Holy Spirit leads you at that point and let the Lord deal with the results. So God encouraged Paul, and now Paul is encouraging Timothy to encourage the Thessalonians. And this word encourage, parakalio, it means to call to one side. It means to entreat, to comfort, to instruct. And the Holy Spirit, as we know in Greek, is the paraclete, the one who comes alongside those that belong to Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives inside us. The Holy Spirit strengthens us, teaches us, corrects us, and guides us. And our calling, our privilege, is to do the same thing for each other. We're called to encourage each other. It's a privilege to encourage each other. It's a privilege to get involved in each other's lives and support each other in the trials of life. You know, the truth of it is, if, if everyone here knew everyone else's story, most of us would stop bellyaching about our story. Because we would say, wow, I thought I had troubles and trials. Just perspective. Everyone has troubles and trials. And if you were given the option to swap your troubles and trials for theirs, you probably say, I think I'll keep mine. At least I know those, right? I've learned how to trust the Lord with those. So one of the reasons when you see prayer requests, understand that's a ministry that you have to lift up your family members to Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and ask him to comfort and heal and guide and direct and give them power or endurance, or whatever they need. And that's a privilege we have to do that with each other in the same way that Timothy had to do with the Thessalonians. So Paul said, look, I want to encourage you, Thessalonians, so that no one is going to get disturbed by your afflictions. And that means to be perturbed mentally. Paul said, I don't want your afflictions to cause you to be upset or alarmed or uptight because you yourselves know that we have been destined for these afflictions. 
You know, if you know something's inevitable, you can expect it, and you can prepare for it. And this word afflictions is a difficult word. It means ongoing or repeated pain of body, mind, or emotions. It means to painfully strike or flog someone. Right? Have you ever felt flogged by life? Just beaten. And you get up in the morning, and it just beats you again. And then you go to bed in the evening, and it just beats you again. And you think that eight hours of sleep is supposed to help. You only actually get four because you're up three times, right? And you get up in the morning, and you still feel beat, right? That's what it is. The Greek word is thalipsis, which is a very fancy way to say press. It means to crush. It means to compress. It means to squeeze, like squeezing grapes. You want to get juice out of grapes, what do you do? You crush the grapes. You break the skins, and every ounce of juice is squeezed out. Back in the day, they used to crush grapes in a vat, and you would stomp them with your bare feet. I know you're going, what kind of wine did that make? But at any rate... Literally, they would stomp grapes in bare feet, and they would do it until they were crushed, right? All the skins were broken. Guess what? You and I are the grapes in the vat of life. And you said, I knew it. I knew that was me, right? And God uses trials and troubles and tribulations to crush what? Our pride, our arrogance, our self-sufficiency, and to teach us to depend on him and to make us more like Jesus. You know, we all, I tell people, you can't make fine wine if you don't crush any grapes. That's just life. Paul says, we kept telling you when we were with you that we were going to suffer. Expect it. Don't be surprised that you're going to get persecution and pressure from the enemies of Christ. It's not a matter of if it'll happen, it's a question of when it'll happen, so don't be surprised. I know that most of you probably don't remember, but some of you may do. You're kind of my stage of the game. Lynn Anderson recorded her single, Rose Garden, in 1970, and the opening lyric read, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. Along with the sunshine, there's got to be a little rain sometime. Man, you're with it. I'm telling you. I'm feeling good about you. See, sometimes in life, yeah, I know. You're remembering what your life was like in 1970. It's not the same, just saying, right? Bell bottoms and, you know, yeah, really. Sometimes in life, it's not the little rain, it's a hurricane. If it's not tied down, it's going to blow away. Some of you are in that hurricane. Well, that's what faith does. It anchors, it ties down our life to the rock called Jesus Christ. If your house is built, if your life is anchored on the rock of Jesus Christ, it will stand firm, even though class five hurricanes are howling around your ears. I know some of your stories, and I know some of us in this room are struggling to stand upright because the wind is so strong. Here's a little clue. It's actually easier if you face the wind on your knees. A little less resistance, right? A little divine help, a lot of divine help. New Christians are sometimes told that Jesus will solve all their earthly problems by Saturday afternoon. That has not been my experience. 
The health and wealth teachers recruit disciples by promising that if you follow Jesus and, of course, send money to them, the Lord will bless you with peace, prosperity, health, wealth, fame, fortune, houses, and lands, and that's not what Jesus said. Once when a wannabe disciple promised Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus told them in Luke 9, 58, what? The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has what? Nowhere to lay his head, not even a sleeping bag. And he's God, right? That doesn't sound like health and wealth to me. What Jesus did promise that those who followed him would be persecuted. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, 2 Timothy 3, 12. And indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So you look at that and you say, why does godly living invite harassment? Why does godly living invite persecution? Well, in case you didn't know it, the world loves their sin. The world hates it when people around them don't sin. Do you know that there are people that are really uncomfortable with you because you don't sin? And that makes them feel guilty, and they don't like to feel guilty. Holy living is convicting. Holiness is a spotlight that shines light on the sinner's life and reveals the dirt. When the Christian does what's right in God's sight, it spotlights what the sinner is not doing that is right in God's sight. So people that sin have a conscience, but they don't like to feel guilty. And so proud people, all of us, reject the idea of humbling themselves before God. So the Holy Spirit comforts us as a believer, but the Holy Spirit convicts and irritates those that are war with God. That's why when you obey God, you have the peace of God, and why people that are disobedient to God have conflict with God. And you all had conflict with God too, right, before you came to faith. I remember warring with God. I'll give you a clue. It didn't go well. (laughs) It didn't go well. It didn't go well for years. But then I'm you know, above average slow learner. So, you know, I mean, it took a while for the Holy Spirit to break me, which I'm very, very grateful he loved me enough to do. So Paul says, Jesus said, in a sinful world, opposition to the gospel is inevitable. Here's the good news. Your trials, your tribulations, your trouble, your heartbreaks are not accidents. They are divine appointments arranged by God to grow our faith and mature us From spiritual children to spiritual adults. You've all raised children, many of you have, nieces and nephews, family, friends, etc., etc. One of the hardest things to do is to let your children skin their knees when they're learning to ride the bicycle. They probably won't learn to ride it any other way. Most of the lessons you and I have learned in life We probably took some scar tissue to learn those lessons. And trials and tribulations and afflictions and trouble doesn't mean defeat. It just means we're on the battlefield between good and evil. If you're getting harassed for your faith, that's probably a pretty good sign you're on the battlefield, which is better than being on the sidelines. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, has given us great comfort, though he said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage, and what's the great promise? 
I have overcome the world. So when you're in the middle of harassment, when you're in the middle of dealing with grief, or in the middle of dealing with sorrow, when you're in the middle of dealing with whatever problems or opposition or obstacles or heartbreak you have, Jesus Christ said, whatever that is, I have overcome it. Whatever that is, I am stronger than that. Whatever that is, my love is sufficient for you, more than sufficient in the middle of that. Choose to be courageous because I have already won the war when I died for your sins and overcame death when I rose from the grave. However, Satan is a liar, and Satan wants to tempt us to doubt God's word. Satan wants to tempt us that God is not a good God, and that if God really loved you, you would have no problems. That is a lie. And many of you are old enough to know that. Paul is quite concerned that these young believers in Thessalonica may have fallen into the temptation of the devil and thrown their, board over, thrown their faith overboard because of that problem. Satan is a tempter, we know that. He persuades people to sin. By the way, there's a big difference between testing your faith and being tempted. God tests your faith. Satan tempts you to sin. The book of James says, Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So when you say, well, God is testing my faith, that's designed to make it stronger. God is testing your faith because he wants to draw you closer to him. He wants to lead you to follow him. Satan always tempts us to what? Walk away from God. He wants to separate us from God. You know, as Pastor Andrew said this morning, Satan came to Eve and said, has God said, right? Doubt God's goodness, doubt God's word. When Satan separates you from the Lord or tries to, guess what? You're dead meat. Our strength comes from walking with God. Verse 6, Paul writes to them, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and our affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith, for we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Now remember, Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica. He walks the 300 miles, he spends a few months there, and he comes back to Paul in Athens and says, or Corinth and says, they're really doing well. Their faith is strong, they love us, they're walking with the Lord. So Paul writes them this letter after Timothy comes back. And this letter is a response to Timothy's good news report. So that's why he says, Timothy's come back and he's told us all these good things about you. Here's the principle. When we face our trials with faith, we encourage other believers to stand firm in their faith. When we face our trials with faith, we encourage other believers to stand firm in their faith. So Timothy came back to Paul with a good report card. He said, look, our students are learning their lessons. They're steadfast in their faith. They long to see us again. That word good news, the word good news is evangelism. The good, the good news is the same as the gospel. It means to announce glad tidings. And Paul was absolutely thrilled that they were standing firm in their faith. They had fond memories of Paul. They longed to see Paul like he longed to see them. 
They stood firm despite afflictions. Their love wasn't diminished as a respect for suffering. Remember, faith in Christ and love for God and others is the essence of the Christian life. And then Paul makes a real interesting comment. He says, look, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Interesting question. When do you really live? When do you feel most alive? What in life do you have to have in order to feel like, I have the good life. I am really living the dream at this point. Many, many people in this life are preoccupied with trivialities. Have you ever said to somebody, with love, of course, you need to get a life? (laughs) Right? Of course you said that with love, right? It means that they're preoccupied with stuff that is like not significant, right? Get a life. Do something significant. Do something important. Some people's life is all about Money, sex, power, fame, fortune, fun, you know, the things of this life. Paul's life was all about the spiritual well-being of others. Paul said, I really live to encourage people's relationship with Christ. Jesus said that real life, eternal life, is what? Knowing God. Real life is a vertical relationship with God. When Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he was praying to his heavenly Father in John 17, and he said, This is eternal life, that they, you and I, his people, might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So life, real life, spiritual life, eternal life, that can never be taken away, is a relationship, a right relationship, an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul says, when the people that I love are growing in their relationship with Jesus, that brings me great joy. 3 John 1, 4 says, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And as a parent, there's nothing more joyful than to see our children growing spiritually in their walk with Jesus. And there's no greater sorrow than to see people you love, whether it's family, friends, nieces, nephews, anybody you love, nothing is more painful than watching them make foolish and rebellious decisions. Because you can see the train wreck coming. Yes? You can see it coming. Paul says, my goal is to have you stand firm in the Lord. Now, they were baby Christians. These were brand new believers, and they needed to grow and mature. Babies have to learn to stand first. Yes? You all had children. They kind of learn to stand, kind of, sort of. They get on hands and knees, and then kind of walk, and then run. We don't expect them to run first. We expect them to stand, then walk, then run. Martin Luther in 1517, wrote 95 theses on the Christian faith, posted them on the castle door at Wittenberg. He's now on trial by the Roman Catholic Church, and he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Almost 1,500 years earlier, the Apostle Paul had written in Ephesians 6.11, three times you're going to hear this same phrase, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to what? Stand firm against the schemes of the devil, verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist an evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And verse 14, he says, therefore, 
stand firm, right? This, this word stand firm or stand fast, it's a military term. It means that you refuse to retreat in the face of attack. Stand firm means that you know what God says, you do what God says despite obstacles, opposition, persecution, pain, sour trials, or sweet temptations, right? You know, one of the temptations we have at this stage of life is just to say, I want to do what I want to do. I paid my dues. I've worked all these years. I've raised children. You can't believe how much heartache they were. You just can't believe, you know, right? Blah, blah, blah. So now it's my time. And this culture tells you all that. That is something like baloney, right? Okay? It means that God has purpose for us at this stage of life, and it's not all about comfort. And it's not all about my time. It's about doing things that are eternally significant. Paul was talking about, I'm going to help other believers stand firm in their faith. And of course, you say, well, okay, if you're going to stand, what do you stand on? What's the foundation of your faith? You've heard the old song, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Yeah, the foundation of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse 9, Paul is so grateful, he's so happy, he says, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Here's the principle. Persistent prayer for others is a powerful way to help them grow in their faith. Persistent prayer for others is a powerful way to help them grow in their faith. Now, Paul has an attitude of gratitude. He's thrilled that God has protected these Thessalonians from temptation to throw away their faith due to afflictions. Paul's the kind of guy who prays anytime, anywhere, over everything, which is a pretty good model for us, right? He's in constant communication with God through prayer. It's not that he doesn't do anything but pray. It's that he's always mindful of God's constant presence and he desires constantly to communicate with God. Remember the old song, I'm dating myself, Elvis sang? You were always on my mind, right? Even though I wasn't there, physically you were always on my mind. Well, Jesus was always on Paul's mind. He was always in the back of his mind. He had Jesus there and every time he had, he would talk to Jesus routinely like you do when you're in love. Hopefully you still are. But when you were courting, you were lying like a dog to each other, and you were always talking. I know texting back then, but you know they were always on your mind because you were in love. Let me tell you, when you love someone, they're always on your mind. Paul loved Jesus, and Jesus was always on his mind, so he was praying, communicating, talking with God on a regular basis, and he was doing it earnestly. That means with passion. It's praying based on need. This word earnestly means over and above. It means more than what seems necessary. He was compelled to pray for their spiritual safety. When I think about passionate praying, um, remember when you had teenagers? Yeah, I know, vaguely, vaguely. Remember on Friday and Saturday nights when they were not in your home? And they told you they were going to ABC XYZ friend's house. 
And you learned some new things about prayer, didn't you? And you prayed, oh God, help them not be stupid like I was. Because you know what you told your parents when you were teenagers. So that's, a, that's an example of maybe some passionate prayer because you're saying, Lord, I know what trouble they can get into because I know what trouble I got into. So you're passionately praying, especially about 11 or 12 or 1 on Saturday morning when they're not home yet. And you're saying, oh God, help not do anything really stupid, protect them. Blah, blah. That's passionate prayer. Paul is praying that way for the spiritual protection of these people. See, God invites us to pray. He also commands us to pray. And prayer is pretty simple. Prayer is infinite God being communicated to by finite people. It's finite people communicating with God. And we often use this acronym ACTS, ACTS, to help us to remember how to pray, balanced prayer. A stands for what? Adoration. C stands for confession. T stands for thanksgiving. S stands for supplication. The reason we talk about this is because most of us, if left to our devices, we just camp on S. Right? It's all about God, I need, would you please, please do this, and we're just asking, 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 asking. Now, let's walk through this briefly. We adore God for who he is. You've heard the song, God is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, merciful and mighty, perfect in power and love and purity. That's who he is. He's God. He's infinitely great and he's completely good. And this adore means to love intensely. Sometimes we talk about our grandchildren that way. Oh, I just adore my grandchildren. It means you love them intensely. You used to love your children that way, but you know, right? I know, I know. I'm harassing you now. That's what we're going to do, right? It mean, you know, ultimately, it means to revere. It means to worship. We adore God because he's worthy of our worship. He only is worthy of our worship. He's our creator and we're his creatures. And we will never comprehend all that God is because he's finite and we're, he's infinite and we're finite. But worship is the right response of the creature to the creator. So we begin in prayer by elevating God for who he is. And that's what our worship teams do and our worship orchestra and our worship choirs do. They lift us up by elevating God to the proper position. Most of our worship music is about what? God, worshiping the Lord for who he is. Secondly, we confess because once we've realized that God is holy, we realize that we are sinful. God loves people. God loves you. He hates your sin. Now that's a problem because sometimes my sin and me are really connected. Like, really connected. So how's God going to love me and hate my sin? Really hate my sin. Want to destroy my sin. Going to destroy my sin. But love me. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ is about. So confession, once you recognize that God is holy and I am unholy, it agrees with God about our sin. It says, God, I acknowledge that your evaluation of my life is accurate. I'm a sinner. I've broken your will, your way, your covenant, and I need your forgiveness. And you promise that through Jesus Christ. It's understanding that my relationship with God completely depends on his grace and not on my goodness. 1 John 1.9 is the believer's bar of soap. You should use the bar of soap multiple times a day. What does 1 John 1.9 say? If we confess our sins, he is what? 
faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And all means all. And we have a lot in that all category. But the blood of Jesus Christ is greater than our sins. So adoration, who God is, confession, who I am, acknowledging my relationship with him is broken from sin, and that needs to be dealt with. Then we give thanks for what God does. That's thanksgiving. God provides for our needs. God is a father who is present with his children. He provides for his children. He protects his children. You know the number one thing you should thank God for every day? Number one, salvation. You have heaven to look forward to. Promised and delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That he loved you enough to send his son to pay your sin debt. And so we can live together forever in heaven with him. Because I'll tell you something. This life does not get easier as we get older. It gets harder. And we need heaven to look forward to. We really do. And God knows that. And lastly, we make supplication. Supplication is a fancy word for ask. We make requests. We say, God, would you please do this? God, you're infinite. Would you intervene and act on my behalf and do X, Y, Z? It's a statement of dependency. It acknowledges we need the Lord. Now, I had a little conversation with Carolyn last week. If you want God to say yes to your requests, there is a way to always hear yes. Would you like to find out? <laughs> Ask according to his will. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. John 14, 14, Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, that means in my power for my glory, I will do it. Whoa, how would you like to get yeses all the time? James says, sometimes you get no's. Why do you get no's? You ask and do not receive, James 4.3, because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. So you ask selfishly, and then you say, how come God's not answering? Because your heavenly Father knows that it would not be good for you to have what you are so passionate about acquiring, whatever it is. If you pray... Not my will, but your will be done. God will always say yes to that request. Sometimes God says, wait. He says, it's a good request. It's just not the right time. So be patient. When the time's right, it'll be. But sometimes God says no. And it's because our Heavenly Father knows what we need more than we need. And when he says no, it means he has a better plan for us coming up. So Paul, what was Paul praying about? Paul said, I'm praying that we would be able to complete what's lacking in your faith. Now, the Thessalonians, they didn't have defective faith, but it was incomplete. They were immature Christians. And complete, this word complete, it means to outfit. Um, it means to equip an army with provisions. You know, if you're going to go to war, it's helpful to have provisions with you so you're prepared to go to war. How many have ever gone camping? I don't mean glamping in your RV. I mean camping <laughs> on your feet and legs and you're camping. I want to tell you something. The further you go into back country, the more important it is that you 
outfit yourself because you can't run to a Walmart when you're way in the backcountry at 8,500 feet and buy what you need. If you didn't bring it, oh well, right? Do without. So we're talking about outfitting your faith, completing your faith, right? Making sure you have everything you need. By the way, it can also mean mending nets, which means you repair what's broken. So you're ready for action at that point in time. So Paul says, our mission is to complete your faith. It's to outfit your faith. And guess what? God is in the process of doing that with us all the time. And he also wants to mend what's broken in our life, like setting a bone or mending a net. Sometimes we go, man, my faith just got ripped up pretty bad right back there, and I need to have it mended. That's what outfitting your faith is, and that's what the Lord is going to do, verse 11. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Here's the principle. As we depend on him, the Lord will cause our love to grow and make us more like Jesus. As we depend on him, the Lord will cause our love to grow and make us more like Jesus. Now, Paul says, look, I've been wanting to see you for months and months and months and months. But if you remember earlier, he says, Satan is hindering us. Doesn't say how. We're not sure how Satan, but we know that they have obstacles, spiritual obstacles for Paul not to get back to Thessalonians. So he says, you know, The Lord's going to direct our way to you, which means I'm depending on the Lord to remove the obstacles and clear the way for our goal to be achieved. Here's an interesting concept. As we mature in Christ, we should be learning to depend more on him and depend less on ourselves. You know, when you're young, grr, We really worship this idea of self-reliance. Just suck it up and get it done, baby, right? Get her done, whatever it takes, right? And we don't think we don't need anybody for anything. We don't need friends. I can do it myself. Can't count on anybody anyway. They'll just let you down, yada, 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 yada. One of the things happens as you age, you realize that we are far more dependent on God than what we realized. You are breathing his air. And your next heartbeat is a gift. As we mature in Christ, we grow more dependent on God. Paradoxically, we get stronger the more dependent we become. Because you now have his divine power, the Holy Spirit, working in and through you when you depend When you're independent, you're relying on whose strength? Your own strength, which is not much. So God wants us to depend on him, and he wants also for what? Well, among other things, to teach us to love other people. And he wants us to love other people with his love. By the way, God's love is pretty active, extremely active, and it's a self-giving love. It says, for God so loved the world that he what? Took action and gave his only begotten son. Paul says, I want your love to increase, which means to be abundant, and I want it to abound. 
This means you have so much love, divine love, God's love, that there's leftovers. I love going to a restaurant where they serve you so much that you can take some home. Right? So that's what he's talking about. He said the love of God in your life is so vast that it's a surplus. Our love should overflow, and the source of that love is Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is walking through Samaria. He met a woman by the well, and she was drawing water, and Jesus made her a promise. He said, if you ask me, I will give you living water so that you won't have to come back here, right? And you're never going to thirst again. And she said, whoa, I never have to drop this bucket down in the well again. Give me some of that living water, right? And Jesus said in John 4, 13, everyone who drinks of the water of this well will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him becomes in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, when Jesus enters a life, he changes that life. He brings what? Life, spiritual life, and he brings love. Superabundant love that overflows like a spring that bubbles out of the ground. And the source of our ability to love depends on an intimate connection with Jesus Christ. If your love is drying up, I got a real simple diagnosis. It's a lack of connection with the reservoir. It's trying to love people on your own. Have you noticed that most people inherently are not easy to love? Actually, they're pretty worthless. They're self-centered little pigs. Just like we are. Who do you think about most of the time when you wake up in the morning? Yourself. Of course we do. That's the nature of sinful, selfish people. And you say, well, where does this love come from? It comes from divine intervention when Jesus Christ enters your life and he flows love out of you like water out of a spring. And so when we're connected to the source of life and we ask Jesus to fill us with love in order that we would love people in our life that we don't even like. Do you have anybody in your life like that? They're difficult to love. They're hard to love. As a matter of fact, in the flesh, they're impossible to love. But Jesus will give you the love that you need for them because Jesus loves them, and you are the channel. He says, I want to establish you. We already talked about that means stable and firm and constant and grow up to maturity, and I want you to grow in holiness. I want you to live a blameless life, which means it's not a sinless life. But anytime sin occurs in a blameless life, it means they repent and confess of it, and so no one can legitimately bring an accusation against them. God wants us to become more and more like Jesus, and he wants us to come more and more like Jesus because Jesus is coming back. The most significant event on planet Earth is the return of the king. And he is coming. We don't know when, but he is coming. And that should motivate us to holy living because every single one of us will stand before his throne. And our destiny should motivate us to purity. You can write that one down. Your destiny should motivate you to purity. And since he could return at any time, we should always be ready for his return. 
So Paul is writing to these Thessalonians. He says, I miss you. I love you. I want to establish you in your faith. I want you to grow in spiritual maturity. I want you to learn to endure hardship and opposition and obstacles and afflictions, etc., etc. And I want you to become like Christ. Guess what? The Lord Jesus wants exactly the same thing for us today. So let's review, and then Tom will come and do prayer and praise. One, staying connected to caring people can help us grow stronger when we face the inevitable trials of life. We know trials and troubles are inevitable. We also know that God did not design us to do life alone. You're not designed to do life alone. You're designed to do life with God's people. That's one of the reasons we're here. Number two, when we face our trials with faith, we encourage other believers to stand firm in their faith. See, faith is contagious. When you see someone standing firm and you listen to their example and you see how they're trusting the Lord in the middle of heartbreak and trials and troubles, you know, you look and you go, wow, that is gas in my tank. That encourages me, right? Number three, persistent prayer for others is a powerful way to help people grow in their faith. And this is so encouraging because there's a lot of people in your life you cannot talk to directly, right? They won't listen. They won't listen. But you can pray for them because the Holy Spirit can go places you can't go. The Holy Spirit can arrange their circumstances in life to cause their hearing aid to turn on. You know, when there's enough trouble and enough pain, most of our hearing aids go, maybe I should think about something different. What I'm currently doing is kind of disastrous. Now, no one will admit that publicly, but, you know, enough pain will cause you to think that way. So be praying, persistent, ongoing. Bang on heaven's door multiple times a day. Lastly, as we depend on him, the Lord will cause our love to grow and make us more like Jesus. And ultimately, when we talk about maturing in our faith, Jesus is the model. Jesus is what we're trying to be like. And that's what the Holy Spirit is moving our circumstances to change our character from the inside out and from the outside in to cause us to be more and more like Jesus. So you want to find out what the model is? What you're supposed to look like is Jesus Christ. And that's God's plan and purpose. We covered a lot of turf. Thank you for hanging in with me. I love you all so much. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.